Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Emily Weber. Emily is a healthcare lawyer and the office managing partner of Foley's Denver office. In this discussion, Emily shares about growing up in Durham, North Carolina. She talks about how when she went to college, she was virtually certain she wanted to be a medical doctor, but changed her mind. She talks about what it was that led her to the law, and she also shares how it was that she found her first law job. When I first reached out to Emily for this podcast, she was so excited to be on because she said, my path is a bit non-traditional, and I think she's right. The story that Emily shares is one in which she graduated from law school without a job, did doc review assignments for about a year, but through sheer tenacity, secured a job in-house at a healthcare system. Emily talks about the many years she spent in-house, the differences between being an in-house lawyer and being an outside counsel. Also, Emily raises an issue that I haven't previously discussed on this show. She talks about business development and how for her joining a law firm, business development was a skill that she did not have having been an in-house lawyer. She provides some really important advice about the importance of being one's authentic self and whatever means you choose to use to develop business. Also, Emily ends this by giving some great advice to anybody out there, but especially those law students who are dealing with a difficult job market right now. As usual for the path and the practice, we have a wide-ranging conversation, and I hope you enjoy our discussion. Hi, Emily. Welcome to the podcast. Let's just jump in with you giving your professional intro. Hi, Alexis. Well, this is great, and thank you for having me. My name is Emily Weber, and I'm a healthcare partner at Foley & Lardner in the Denver office. I will share, you're not just merely a healthcare partner, you are also the office managing partner of our Denver office, right? Well, I am, that is true. (laughs) And so it's an exciting time because we're really growing our office and we've got a lot of good things planned for the rest of 2020 and certainly 2021. Well, I'm certain we're going to hear more about that. But before we talk about Foley, I want to talk about you. Where are you from? Where did you grow up, Emily? So I was born in Washington, D.C., but I grew up in Durham, North Carolina. And so spent all my time there. Uh, My parents moved to Philly about 20 years ago, but I grew up in Durham. It was an awesome place to grow up. We are most definitely Duke fans, not Carolina fans. Everyone always asks that. In fact, my parents still have Duke basketball tickets, even though they live in Philly. So that's something that you never give up because there's about a 20-year wait list uh, for Duke basketball tickets. Can you drop down? How far is that? It's about... I don't know, maybe five hours, six hours, but they, they'll fly down every now and then. Honestly, they give them the tickets to friends or they're a hot commodity for, uh, if you, you'll have, uh, I'm trying to think of like, if there's a silent auction or something like that. Oh, that's a great thing to donate for sure. 
people will pay a lot of money for the tickets. <laughs> well, that's really interesting. And before we jumped on, we were just saying how this is our first time talking. We've been otherwise corresponding via email. That's right. So I know you're in Colorado, but for you to say I grew or I was born in DC, but I was raised in North Carolina, I did not expect that. I don't know what I was expecting. But can you tell me a bit about growing up in North Carolina and any reflections on like what were you like as a kid? What were you into? Well, I actually thought North Carolina was a really great place to grow up. Durham is not like the rest, I would say, most of North Carolina. I mean, almost, I don't have a Southern accent because my parents aren't from Durham and uh, they were, my mom was a nursing professor at Carolina and my dad was a doctor at Duke. And so almost all of my friends, their parents weren't from North Carolina because they, you know, Duke and Carolina have such a strong presence around that area. But it was a wonderful place to grow up. It was fun. I, my dad would always try and have me play a lot of golf. We grew up on a golf course and it's sort of those beautiful North Carolina old golf courses. But I hated, I hated uh, playing golf when I was young. One, because my dad would always make me walk and it was too hot. And two, he would give me too many suggestions on things I should do to get better. But now I'm very thankful Beyond thankful that he had me playing golf at such a young age because when I kind of picked it back up when I met my husband, which I'll, we met in law school and I can talk more about that later, but it definitely, I was kind of a step ahead, but Durham was a great place. I mean, it's, I would say the weather's nice, but the weather in Colorado was way better. It was just a fun place to grow up. You know, we were about seven minutes from Duke and seven minutes from Carolina. Truly. I mean, we were right in the middle of it. The universities really have a large impact on the area. And actually, since I've left North Carolina, I got married there actually 11 years ago next week. But it it has really changed. I mean, it's gotten a lot bigger. It's sort of one of those hot areas to live. And I think the Chapel Hill or or Durham is often ranked as like the, I think besides Charleston, South Carolina, the foodie capital of the South. So it's a great place to go. And I've I requested to do the Duke OCI interviews because I, w- I want a reason to go back there. Right. So that won't be this year because yeah, of you, the, the, right. but next year. Next year, that's right. Okay. I'm trying to think of where I want to take this. I can tell you where I went from there. I've kind of lived all over. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. So I always, lately I've been starting with, and so were you, you know, on the golf course course with your dad being like, I want to be a lawyer when I grow up <laughs> or so. So what? I was not. I most definitely was not. My dad was really involved with the med school at Duke, and he was the acting dean of the med school the last couple of years of the late 90s. Um, and so at that point, I was in college in St. Louis at Washington University in St. Louis, and they have a one of the top med schools in the country. And so I, I had always thought that I wanted to go to med school, um, but I kind of didn't. I was a biology major and it was very competitive at WashU because everyone wanted to go to med school there. And despite what some may think, my parents said, no, don't do it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. It's just too hard. Don't do it. So I still, though, was stubborn about it and became, you know, I, I finished my biology degree and I was a Japanese minor, which is sort of strange, but it was fun. You have to say a little bit more about the Japanese minor. <laughs> it was just, I really liked the history part of it. And I took a couple of years of Japanese. I went to Tokyo between my junior and senior years in college, and it was awesome. 
I just thought it was interesting and I liked the people that I, you know, the faculty and the students, they were very different than sort of my biology friends, which were very different than my, I would call my social friends, who I'm still, of course, very close with. But I was living, and then after that, after WashU, I moved to Boston and I was working for Genzyme, which is a large biotech in, um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I was studying for the MCATs and I just said, I don't want to do this. I don't like it enough. I just am not into it. And they said, well, don't do it, you know, find something else to do. But I was in regulatory affairs at Genzyme, which basically puts together the applications for all of the drug approvals. And so you work with all these different departments. And there's this guy, Roger Lewis at Genzyme, who I believe is the chief compliance officer there now. Anyways, he encouraged me to start going to some of their legal meetings. I mean, I truly had never in my life thought about going to law school. I barely knew any lawyers. It was just not part of like my, my world. And I thought it was kind of interesting. I said, well, I got to do something. I might as, well just, <laughs> might as well study for the LSATs and go to law school. So, so I did that. And then I ended up going to Villanova Law School in Philadelphia. And then I'll take a, I'll fast forward. I went to Villanova that where I met my now husband. We actually lived and worked in Vail, Colorado. Then we went back to Philadelphia because I was at Temple University Health System. And then we came back to Denver where we've been since 2013. And I'm going to stop you there because there's more, but I have questions about some of these different things. Okay. And just to summarize, I, you're a biology major with a Japanese minor who was set on med school and then was like, no, <laughs> but right. yes, but you were able to get a job. And Genzyme, I think you mentioned a biotech company, which exposes you to this side of, I don't know the world, the law that you weren't aware of, and you're convinced, okay, I'm applying to law school. And within law school, did you know that healthcare law, or at that point, were you sort of open to what law could bring? Both. I mean, I think I felt really comfortable in the healthcare setting because I just grew up around it. And I liked academic medical centers. I mean, my dad would We've probably broke child labor laws, but when I was young, he would have me put pipette tips in little boxes to be clean. I mean, it was like ridiculous. <laughs> would pay That's a really interesting. Yeah, <laughs> but I did it. So I was very comfortable in that area. But in law school, I worked for the DA's office and then also clerked for a criminal judge. So I actually was sort of, I, I thought maybe I would go to the DA's office, but um, that didn't happen. Um, and I'm glad I didn't because I like, I really like what I do. Well, and I'm also finding this really interesting and funny because by the time this podcast airs, it'll have been two podcasts before this one. Um, another partner in the firm, Larry Perlman, who was a full on medical doctor before law school. Yes, exactly. But it's, and so for those who listen to both this and his, it's just funny because you're like, really was set on med school, then was like, nope. Or is he shares that he always knew he wanted to go to law school, but instead ended up doing this doctor thing for a while <laughs> before going back, which I just think is so, so interesting. Okay. And then after law school, though, you said you were, and I'm also, as I said, I'm, I have your LinkedIn pull up for the listeners. I do this with everyone. It just helps me follow their story. You join Temple University Health System as associate counsel. Is that how that, that worked? Or what was that transition from law school to the job outside of law school? So we actually, I met my husband in law school that I mentioned, and he was from New York, but his family moved to the Vail Valley when he finished high school. So in Vail, Colorado. 
So when we were leaving law school, we said, I said, well, I guess well. And I skipped it. You're, I see yeah. Vale Valley, right? Just, I'm sorry. I skipped right over. Okay. Keep going. So we said, well, do we stay in Philly? Do we go to New York where we had a lot of family and friends or do we go to Vail? And that was a no brainer. So we actually sat for the bar and it was extremely hard to get a job in Colorado. I don't, I imagine it's still the same way here. It's been a while, but I basically, if you didn't go to the two, to University of Denver or CU Law School, it didn't matter where you went. I mean, I had, I knew this one guy who was editor of law review at Yale and got one offer. I mean, it was bananas. So it was really, really tough to get a job. That regional pull is so strong. It's the same as your, I mean, this might not be a funny joke, but but it's the same as it saying you went to law school on like Mars or something. It was, it was basically like I went to law school on Mars and like no one cared about anything other than going to DU or CU. So I definitely do not have the more traditional like way of going to a law firm or certainly becoming a partner. I mean, I had to take a various number of like doc review jobs because my parents basically said we paid for undergrad. We paid for part of law school. I don't care if you work for Home Depot, but like your money has ended now. So yeah, find something that pays you money. We don't care what it is. Yeah, and I and they are people that will definitely stand behind their work. So I was like, well, I guess I got to get a job. So well, you know, for maybe a year or so, I did a doc review job because I just needed I needed to get a job. I needed to have some money. Then my husband got a job up in the mountains where Vail and parts of Aspen are as an assistant county attorney. So I literally wrote a letter to the hospital there and said, I'm a young attorney and I'm cheap. Do you have a job? I I couldn't even tell if they had any in-house attorney. And it turned out that they had a GC and three weeks later they created a job for me. We have to pause on that. That's amazing, by the way. And I realize for you, you've since had so many other professional successes since then. But that is worth just pausing on for one second, the tenacity you showed there. And so when I look, we're about a year apart in terms of law school. So so for us, like as we're looking back at like this is getting to the point where it's sort of a while ago. But <laughs> we have sort of we have there's some tough times now within the job market. And as law students are starting to listen to that, I just really hope they heard what you said, which was you know, I, I get out and I move to a part of the country where my law school has no name recognition, where even those that like, you know, top one, because <laughs> I think Yale's number one or two, at least, they struggle. You did what you needed to do, but that is not to take the initiative to write this letter that's like, hey, I'm a law, I'm a lawyer and I want to work. That's phenomenal. So I'm sorry, I'm just riffing on that for a little bit, but, you know, kudos to Emily back in 2008 yeah. <laughs> for having the presence of mine and for that working out because that's amazing. Right. Well, it was, um, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways to get someplace. And I mean, people have to find that area where you are being tenacious and going after something, but you're also not being annoying. And I think it's different for every personality type. And so I don't, again, so there's no one way to do that, but it did work out. And um, so I got a lot of great experience there and I kind of volunteered for every thing I could do and every, every non-legal thing I could do as well. I learned a lot about how hospitals operate there. So Vail Valley Medical Center is a hot, was it a hospital system or could you say a little bit more about, about what it was? Yeah, sure. It's a hospital in Vail, Colorado. It's actually now, um, 
a wonderful client of ours. And it is now a health system. So they've got one main hospital, but a lot of you know outpatient clinics. And they're also very well known because one of, I would say, the two best orthopedic groups in the world is actually out of, they're an independent physician group, um, but a, a bunch of orthopedic surgeons, but they're out of bail. And so they're very tied into the health system. So it's great if there were eight inches of more snow, you would go skiing. Um, part of your pay was the view. <laughs> so it was, but it was a great experience. And so I actually knew that I wanted to work at that point. It was University of Colorado Hospital, but I knew that I needed to get more experience. So a job opened up at Temple University Health System. And actually one of the outside counsel at the time of mail told me about it. So I applied to that and I went there and it was an awesome experience. I still keep in touch with a lot of the people there. It was really fun to work in Philadelphia because people didn't pull punches. And I felt like I became a better, tougher attorney working there. Some of the people, especially the doctors that I had the most conflict with, ended up being sort of the closest to me, I think, if you will. So that was really fun. But then this job opened up, it, it was then had, they had created University of Colorado Health, which is the health system, the big academic health system here. And they hadn't hired someone for 14 years. So I applied to that. My husband couldn't wait to get back to Colorado. And uh, so I got that job and I was there and it was also awesome. And it was just uh, different, you know, it was a larger health system. Um, they have a, a lot going on, and it was really fun working on different projects there. And I really loved working in-house. I had never thought that I would work at a law firm. Again, it was like not on my radar at all. Before you describe making that transition, could you tell us more about what you were doing in those in-house health system roles? What, what did your day sort of look like? So when I was, the easiest one to talk about was at Temple, because I would say, 75% of my job was working on clinical research related matters and 25% was on medical staff matters because they had a large clinical human subjects research program and clinical research program. And the GC there really ran their, her in-house department like a small law firm where everyone had their own specialties. And it was, it was maybe one of the most fun jobs I've ever had. Um, because I was probably in my early 30s at the time, and it was me and, a, and about, about seven guys that were in their early 50s, and they were just the most wonderful, fun, smart, best people uh, almost that I've ever worked with. I, I loved working there. So that was a hard job. I mean, they've all been hard jobs to leave. That one was especially job hard. And I, my, I still consider him to be my mentor. My mentor was there. He's actually now GC of Virginia Commonwealth University Health System in Richmond. Um, and I just really learned a lot from him. His name's Paul Niemeyer. And um, that was, a, he, he was a tough cookie and he made me explain all of my changes, but he's, uh, he's amazing. So, and then when I was at Vail, I really did everything under the sun. I, I worked on contracts, set up compliance systems, did licensing applications, um, helped to set up urgent cares, worked on you know supply chain and vendor contracts. I mean, it was truly everything under the sun because their GC left a couple of years into my job there. So it was just me. 
Yes, that's a really wide range. And I think everybody knows this, but just to pause on one thing, I mean, obviously healthcare is a heavily regulated environment. And so I assume that plays a large part in the all the things you mentioned. <laughs> um, it's not, it's, it's, I have a couple of friends actually that are in-house healthcare, either hospital or healthcare adjacent sort of organizations. And so I have a tiny bit of insight, but I appreciate you elaborating. Yeah, I mean, it's, Sometimes they, sometimes healthcare, especially when you talk about anything related to referral services, plays very heavily into what you're doing. But then oftentimes it's just learning good contracting. Absolutely. You know, procedures and sort of just way to, to negotiate agreements. And then it, when I was at UC Health, there I did um, really interesting more, I did some clinical research matters. I mean, their in-house department grew quite, quite large while I was there. Again, clinical research matters. I also would deal with some medical staff matters and also some more um, like really interesting fraud abuse sort of projects. And when you say clinical research matters, does that, re- tell me, actually tell me more. I was going to guess to what specifically that means, but yeah. Like human, like clinical trials. So what legal aspects come to the in-house lawyer when it relates to clinical trials? So usually you have three things. You've got negotiating the agreements for the sponsors to have um, run the clinical trials at the university. You have the Institutional Review Board or the IRB, and that's the entity that reviews sort of the benefits and looks at the risks and sort of the ethics part of running the trial. And then just general research compliance matters about all sorts of things. No, that makes sense. I appreciate you for for expanding on that because I do use this as my opportunity to ask. I was like, I think I know what that is, but let me make sure. But you, I stopped you before you were getting to the point where I think you were going to say, if you would have asked me, I wouldn't have thought I'd end up in a law firm. (laughs) I would not have ended up at a law firm. And then one of a colleague of mine, Sharon Caulfield, she... What had she was at a firm in she's had been at a couple firms, but she was sort of one of the senior sort of states states women of um, healthcare law in Denver, and she went to a firm Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek, um, which is a very well known Denver based law firm and uh, really an excellent law firm. They have one of the largest lobbying practices in the country, federal lobbying, um, and so it's it's really amazing what they've done. And they consider themselves purple. You know, they do both blue and red work, but, uh, you know, they represent both sides. And so um, she said, well, would you ever be interested in coming to a law firm? And I was like, I I never considered that. And then we talked about it more. And I really credit Sharon with, you know, with the success that I've had is really in large part due to her because I would have never even thought about going to a law firm if it wasn't for her reaching out and her and I talking. So I thought, well, you know, and to help help with their healthcare practice. And I said, well, if there's um there's a time to do this, it's now, I guess. So I made that jump. I had never sold anything in my life. And I do consider part of the legal profession, especially in the partner role, as both providing, you know, excellent work product and doing your legal job, but it's also in a degree a sales job of bringing in work. And I never had that. 
we call it business development as lawyers. Right. We don't we don't like to use the word sales. sales. It's business development. Right. So I'm like, yeah, I never had a business development role in my life. <laughs> and so, but it, and so it's actually kind of a funny story. So I, I, I went to Brownstein and that was also one of the most fun, fun jobs I've ever had. I mean, just the awesome place to work, really smart people, a really, really strong culture there of work, you know, work hard, play hard, but also work hard. <laughs> and so I actually was doing a pitch for to open up a, essentially open up a medical school and a, a college, they set me up, this was out of state. And so they had set me up with someone in that office to help start some meetings. And at the end of the day, we were meeting with a regent of a university and he kind of pulled me aside and said, Emily, and he was the head of the largest advertising firm in that city. And it's a large city. And I said, he said, I just want to let you know, Emily, you're, I really like you. You know, you're really smart. You know what you're talking about. You're fun. That was the worst pitch I've ever heard in my life. Um, you need to work on it. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, uh, thank you for the feedback. And I remember getting in the car with my friend and, sitting there going, Oh my God, what am I going to do? Like, I have no idea how to do this. I've been at a law, for, a law firm now for a month. I'm going to fail, blah, blah, blah. And so she set me up with a fellow partner who has since become a very good friend of mine. His name's, name's Evan Rothstein and he's now at Arnold and Porter and said, why don't you talk to Evan about pitching? He's an IP litigator. Our practices are not at all the same, but we have a very similar personality. And he became one of my very closest friends. And he spent a lot of time with me. He would, you know, I'd have to do fake pitches in my elevator speech and the three things that I always have to say um, in front of him. And it was awkward and weird, but I think that I got a lot better at it. And so that's another, I think, a little tidbit of advice is when you're trying to, you know, speak with clients and bring in business development opportunities, and if you need help, go ask for help. But it does not have to be someone who is at all in your practice group because he didn't help. He didn't know, you know, substantively what I was talking about, but he did know. I mean, he did know it because he's very smart, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean? And so what really matters is to find someone who, who fits your style and then have them help you. And it could be, again, I mean, he's an IP litigator. I'm a healthcare transactional and regulatory attorney. So then, so I was at Brownstein, it was wonderful. And then the opportunity at Foley came. And I think the platform, especially with our regulatory and reimbursement expertise, and we have a very deep bench here, as you know, in healthcare, um, it was a really good fit. And so I'm now at Foley and I anticipate that, you know, that is certainly my last move for a long period of time. <laughs> oh my God. Well, and I have a couple different directions I want to go into. I have to go back to what you said about sales or business development and what, what you learned by basically finding a mentor there. But I love that you raised that because what I've found that as lawyers, particularly in law school, we're so focused on the like, I don't know, the academics, the the pursuit of the law, whatever that means. There isn't, they don't really talk about this in law school at all. That if you end up 
at a law firm, it's a professional services firm with clients. Your goal is to have and get more clients. If you if you have a a, a solo practice, same thing. So that it's just really interesting that, and, and it's something that doesn't come up for a lot of lawyers until they're many years into their career. And it can be really jarring that suddenly it's like, I just thought I had to be good at drafting or arguing or whatever, but I need to quote unquote sell. I need to develop business. So just, I love that you raised that. But are there, what did you learn in working with him? I'm just wondering if there are any kind of high level recommendations that he made or things that you really changed. You know, I think there's a couple of things. I think one of them is just to know yourself. And as he said, you know, if you have a client that's looking for, at least speaking for myself, that's looking for really buttoned up, formal, white shoe sort of attorney, that's not me. And so that's okay, but that's okay. Like I don't, you know, I'm not for everyone. Just like you don't have one person that's a, that's a great fit for 100% of the people out there. But there are many people, you know, at Foley that are like that and that's their strength. And so it's really a figure out who you are and to make sure that you get the right person in front of the right, in front of the right client or potential client, because you know, fundamentally, if a client doesn't like you and they don't want to be around you, they're not going to be your client or they won't be your client for long. And so you have to put, have the, have a good fit with, with that client. And the other thing is just, I think, really just to practice. I mean, the, the more you do of the pitches, the better. I mean, certainly now I love, I love doing business development, but every time I do it, I get a little better. And that's part of actually the pandemic that's that I have disliked the most is the lack, at least for a while, the lack of pitches. Those are certainly starting to to pick back up. But I do really like face-to-face pitches. I don't like doing phone ones because I just don't think that you get a good sense of who someone is. So that's been a little hard. But but I think that those are those are essentially it. Just kind of that's really powerful. And I think so many people have maybe heard it said in different ways, but what you said about not everyone is for you is something that's very hard. And I think initially you want to take a tact of like, I want everyone to like me. Yeah, Yeah. which can often mean stifling your personality and can lead to this kind of tepid response. Because what I've found is that when you do figure more about who you are, what your style is, whether it be with... um pitching yourself as a lawyer or your firm, or even your own just personal branding and networking, which by the way, those are the same thing. (laughs) The more authentic you are, and I get get that's a buzzword now, we're all tired of hearing it, but you know, bear with me as I say it, you get people who become your biggest fan. So instead of being lukewarm to a bunch of, you know, to 10 people who are like, eh, you get three that are like, Emily's my lawyer. I, she's, I know exactly who she is and she's, she's my go-to. So that is such a a powerful observation. But I find that particularly lawyers can be actually very afraid of whatever authentic looks like for them. And so it's just, it's just really interesting to hear you reflect on that. And that of course it's been successful. So that's great. But it takes time, you know, I think it takes a lot of time to figure out who you are and I'm still doing that and figuring out who I am and most importantly, who I want to be as an attorney. And I also was fortunate in that when I came to Brownstein, they hired me as a partner. And I think that the shift from associate to partner, or in our case, senior counsel to partner, is a very tough one. And I don't envy having to 
make that switch from just doing work and becoming a real subject matter expert in whatever you're doing to then also having to do that and bring in business. I think that Foley's very good about giving a long runway. And I like the senior counsel aspect of it because, because it gives those attorneys at that point in their career that time frame for, you know, a number of years to really fine tune that. Absolutely. I just nodded my head profusely as you were were speaking. And so I left legal practice before <laughs> I hit that, what would have been senior counsel or non-equity partner time in my, my career. But in the firms where I had practiced, there was definitely messaging of, it's great that you were a good associate. That's great. <laughs> but we now need you to have a different skill set as you get that look look for partner. And so, and, and it, it is hard. It's very hard. And I think you're right about the culture at Foley. Although I wanted to switch gears a bit. And before we started recording, so I, I mentioned the pandemic and the immense amount of work Foley's healthcare group has been doing as it relates to coronavirus. So we may get a little bit specific as to what it looks like now. But before we do, I'm curious, what is your practice at Foley and Lardner? What does that look like in terms of the breadth of your expertise? 70 to 75% of my time on traditional health system work, provider type work representing health systems and hospitals in a number of different manners. You know, it's, um, I'm not a corporate attorney. We have many, many excellent corporate attorneys and I would never pretend to be one. Um, so I go to them and that's one of the things about fully that I love is that you don't have to pretend to be an expert in everything because there are many, many experts. I mean, I receive the weirdest questions sometimes from clients about questions that they have and they're such unique, interesting questions and I have no idea the answer. And 100% of the time, there is someone who knows the answer to that. And not only do they know it, but that's like what they do. And it, it always surprises me. Like they've done it, they've written firm opinions on that issue, which I'm like, well, okay, well, thanks for, thanks for being the expert. Well, and I, I've seen a little bit of that. I am on the attorney distribution list for, you know, we, we send those emails of like, does anybody here have expertise in X? And it's, and as you said, some of these get very specific and inevitably they'll respond in four minutes being like, thanks, got, got 17 responses. I'm <laughs> literally in four minutes. Yeah. So it, it's pretty impressive, but and then I would say the other 20 to 30% are advising on some device re remote patient monitoring, uh, really, really fun, wonderful um, clients. And I would consider, you know, a lot of it. I always feel weird even saying clients because I don't consider them to be clients. A lot of these you work, you know, they're friends, right? And you create, a, I mean, you talk to them every day and you really create more of a friendship and you know, deep trust about, you know, who they are and you get very invested with them and you, you see them just as you would your personal, you know, your non-work friends that they, there's no option for them to fail. Right. So, so I, I, I hate sort of saying clients, but for the purpose of this conversation, I'll just use that as an easy word to say. And then some really interesting healthcare financing clients um, that I really love working with because they have very unique questions that always make me think. And I, I think that um, while my time in-house, I would never give up. And I think that it's made me um, particularly good at speaking with clients and understanding exactly what they need to really- You've just, been there. You've yeah, been on like, that side. Get your job done, right? Like they don't need 15 page memos. They need discrete answers that are understandable that they can pass on and that are, you know, if it doesn't fit on one page, 
when you look at your email on your computer, then it's too long. But also it's, you know, I think working at a law firm has really allowed me to become more of a specialist in the things that I, that those things I just mentioned that I really like. And I, I like that, that part as well, a lot. Well, and I think you've touched on this, but I'll still ask it directly. In making that transition from being in-house to being a law firm lawyer, of course, the business development component was different. Were there other changes that were very different in terms of, yeah, could you share a bit about those? I felt like, and I still do sometimes, feel like I'm not as precise of a drafter and technically crisp as a lot of associates, you know, who have grown up in it. They know you know, how to put together a really polished, formal memo and stuff like that. And so I, you know, I didn't for 10 years, I wasn't doing that. And so and then when I, and then when I came to the law firm, there are associates that would do, that would do the initial drafts of those. Right. So I, so that, that's something that I felt like I was a little bit behind on. And then the other thing was, you know, especially at a firm like Foley, where you have associates who train under, you know, the best and the brightest, and there's so many at Foley that I, I won't even begin to name them. But they really know the, you know, they know that they can recite the, the regulations and the statutes. And, you know, they're, when you're, everyone says this, when you're in-house, you're a bit of a mile wide and a foot deep. And so that's helped me in a lot of instances, because I can issue spot. And I really have a very global view of issues, but also, you know, I've, I've certainly w- would like to think that I've gotten way, way better at this, but you know, there, there are just some, some attorneys that all they've been doing for 20 years is the same thing. And that, because that means that they are, have a real level of expertise. No, that's exactly right. I'd appreciate you elaborating on that because so within legal, Oftentimes what's said is, you know, you go to the large law firm if you can to get the training, which I think you spoke to a little bit about that precision and drafting. And typically, I know you said your career is a little bit different. You go from law firm and later in-house and you did it the opposite. But also what I love about hearing about your path is generally there's no real rules, right? Most things can work out most ways. And I love the fact that you started out by being like, it was so hard for me to find a job. I wrote someone a letter and they made a job for me and I was very lucky. <laughs> and just to look at that that trajectory over the past, what I mean, now we're closing in on like 12, yeah, 13 years is phenomenal. But I have two things I want to ask you as we wrap up our time. The first is, and I don't know if this is fair and if you can do this somewhat succinctly, but you're a healthcare lawyer and we are now recording this in October of 2020, still in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. I've seen all the emails about coronavirus alerts and the tremendous amount of work that the healthcare uh, group and Foley has been turning out. Can you just share for like a minute or two about how your practice has changed or, or I don't even know any of your reflections on what's going on right now as a healthcare attorney? I think our general practice has changed in that we're just a, as a reflection of all of the CARES Act and the different types of reimbursement and different licensing issues, we've had to advise on that. And we've been really privileged to advise on it. So I do that some. We have attorneys who do that far more frequently than me. And I really rely on them more because the, you know, the executive orders and the laws are, are changing all the time. And so you really, you really need someone who's, who's on top of it on a daily basis. And then um, also, uh, quite frankly, 
I have some clients whose products are really being utilized, especially remote patient monitoring devices during coronavirus. But I wouldn't necessarily say that my practice has changed that much. I mean, some of the reimbursement matters we advise on a lot. I mean, there's a lot, let me put it this way. There's a lot of opportunities that we've gotten because of coronavirus, but the fundamental issues that we're, at least that I'm advising on are kind of the same. It's just that sometimes a little bit more risk related and a lot more related to how you can bill for certain things. That That's the one thing that has absolutely changed is how are billing rules and regulations different during the coronavirus. So, but we're advising on all, every shape and size of question you could ever think of related to this. Thanks for elaborating on that. And then my final question that I ask every episode is for your general reflections or advice on your legal career. If you want to style that to sort of advice to a law student, and in particular, maybe a number of law students who find themselves sort of where you were back in 2007, 2008, it's a tough market out there. What advice do you have to somebody looking to navigate or start their career? Well, I'm so glad that I'm not right out of law school looking for a job. And I really feel for not just law students, but also anyone who is out of work right now, it's, it's terrible and and I don't envy them. But what I would say is that to keep, you know, I think it's always easier to get a job when you have a job. And so don't go for perfection right now. You know, everyone thinks like just go to a law firm, but law firms are notoriously risk adverse, right? And so I think it's a really hard time to go to a law firm right now. I mean, they're just, law firms are just not hiring right now. They're, they're, cap, they're leveraging current associates. You know, we have, for example, we've got many, many good, you know, especially right now our deal group is, is busy, is busy, but when a lot of, you know, right, right when this happened in March and April, a lot of the deals stopped, we were leveraging our unbelievably good corporate associates to do transactional work. And they're like, you know, pick things right. I don't, I don't understand how they're so good. They would pick things right up in a second. Right. But don't go for like sort of the most, you know, traditional way of working. Like I need to go to a law firm. I mean, there are, I think a lot of, I see in-house departments getting bigger and bigger. And just because someone's not, hiring doesn't mean or have a posted position doesn't mean that they're not going to hire you you know you may have to take a little bit of risk you may have to go even not to a health system but there are lots and lots of device companies you know companies that are in some way related to healthcare and they need good solid legal help with good judgment and people who i mean ultimately work hard right like it's so funny when i think about the letters that i used to write about why you know, for getting a job. And when I look, and when I think about it now, you just want someone who gets along well with people and who does their job and makes your life easier. So like that's, that's the advice I would give. And, and then the very last thing would be, so just keep your options open and, you know, spend some time looking around for, for non-traditional jobs, but that are still in, you know, working as a lawyer. And then the second thing is once you're there, do everything you can, raise your hand, whenever you can learn a lot. And the thing I'll end on is like, just be a normal person and don't be a jerk. You know, that's what I tell people. And it's like the best advice that like, just be, just be a nice person. 
Well, and that's really, really solid advice. I feel like I give some version of that to law students frequently, but people will be so focused on this, like, I have to apply to only jobs here. And I'm just like, "Mm, that's not true. So I'm glad that you were able to elaborate on that. And then if someone has questions or reflections, wants to reach out to you, is it okay if they find you on Foley's website, shoot you an email? Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.